0: This is Joseph Trevesi, I'm here with Vincent Feldman, we're recording this interview in Vincent's lovely house in South Philadelphia. Today is the 21st of June, 2014, and this is part of Loud Fast Philly. Hello, Vincent.
1: Hello, how are you doing, Joseph? I'm well doing well. I should well tell place. you that
0: your book, uh, City Abandoned, is absolutely fantastic, and uh, whenever you. people come over to my house, I always show them, especially if they're Philly people, and they're always very uh,
1: entranced by your imagery. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. That's what I left music for. Do, was the was the Yeah. Yeah. So that was a long-term project, and uh, it was recently published in this this early spring, late winter, and uh, it's had a great reception.
0: You're published by Paul Dry in mm-hmm. Philadelphia. Yeah. Uh, was it always your intention to go with them or with a Philly publisher for the book?
1: Um. You know, Paul Dry lives nearby, and um, a friend suggested speaking with him about it, and um, when I finally got him over to my studio to look at the work, he he fell in love with it right away and said within five minutes he wanted to publish it. Uh, So I didn't think I would find a more enthused person Mm -hmm. or publisher... Uh, everybody I heard about, who's almost everybody I know who's done a photo book has had to put money up front. Yeah, yeah. Um, the publishing industry is not that friendly to art books. That mm-hmm. uh, you just can't make money on them. So, um, or at least any noticeable sums of money. So, uh, Paul Dry gave me a traditional book contract. You know, small advance, and you know he let me stir the pot. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, where some publishers might just say, give, me the, give us the pictures and, you know, we'll call you when the uh, final edit's done. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so, it, it was very good to do a book and it was more like a team effort with Paul dry books. And um, so, you know, it was a long one. But... Well, when you
0: have that kind of intimate relationship with the publisher, do you find that you're always sort of promoting the work that, you know, part of it falls on you to, to get, you know, disperse the information about the book out to the world?
1: Um. Yeah, I mean, they're they don't have like a, a huge you know publicity department at mm-hmm. all. So right. you know they're a small publisher. Um, you know they're they're actually large by small publishing standards in Philadelphia. They have a office suite and you know a few employees, mm-hmm. um, where a lot of them are just PO boxes. Right. Yeah. Um, so. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, it's thanks to social media and, you know, the internet, that's sort of a lot of it's up to me. I have to get, you know, poke around and get people interested in it. But yeah, he has some, he definitely has some good connections. Mm-hmm. You know, it was, uh, it was good to get a review in the Wall Street Journal and have a national exposure that great, like yeah. that. I mean, it definitely, mm-hmm. definitely helps sales to be in the media. You know, mm-hmm. I, that, that was one thing I, I really, uh, hit home was, um. Exposure to the media, you know, sells. Yeah, yeah, and I guess in 2014, twenty fourteen, you've. It's really amazing. Do it Even then. newspapers mm-hmm. in yeah. this day and yeah. age still have that power. Mm-hmm. You know, so I was impressed, and uh, I need to get some more too because there's some more books to sell. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, I guess we'll begin
1: more towards the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, where were you born and when? I was born in West Philadelphia, at uh, Hospital University Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. Um, I spent my first three years on Osage Avenue, um, so I grew up in that, uh, my first memories are from that neighborhood, um, Is this and, Osage that ultimately got burned to the ground? Yeah, moved right, um, more like 40, uh, 40th and Osage, 42nd, I'm trying to remember exact. Right, so you were yeah. what, about, like, 20 blocks off or so Yeah, that, that was, you know, a couple that miles was. away, a mile away or okay. so. Um, I can talk about that later because I was there that morning. Oh, yeah, yeah, I'd, like uh, I'd like to hear about that. Uh, what year were you born? I don't know. If 1966. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so we moved to Overbrook. Um, I guess when I was three, and moved into a neighborhood of twin houses. So it was it was suburban, but it was still in Philadelphia. It's the first stop on the main line, so Overbrook Station, and then the next one. You know, things change, get really green and. And preppy on the next block. But it was like an Irish Catholic little enclave. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were like a Jewish Italian family. Uh, I'm the only child. All the other houses have up to ten kids a house. You know, right. ten, five. The Malloys, the Carmody's, the Quinn's. <laughs> yeah, they never um, stopped making them. Yeah, and then on one, the other side, it was Orthodox Jewish. Because there was a yeshiva on the one side. And on the other side, it was like your traditional uh, middle class blacks... Uh, row homes where Will Smith came from. His Mm -hmm. uh, his neighborhood was like three blocks over. Were you
0: raised with religion?
1: No, um, you know, my parents both came from you know, progressive immigrant families, so that that tradition of being uh, skeptical of authority and organizations, large organizations, Mm -hmm. you know, that that came through with my upbringing. Um, so I was raised as an atheist. Um Yeah, I mean, I actually, you know, relaxed that a little later to become a little bit more spiritual-oriented, but um, it wasn't anything like, um, you know, uh, against religion or anything. just, you know, there were other things to occupy your mind with. Mm-hmm. And religion just tends to be like television in a lot of ways. It, can, well, it fills your head it, with a lot yeah, of clutter. It can, yeah, yeah, it take over your life in a way. So, um, yeah, but... It, and, and my I, my mother my grandmother lived with us and my aunt lived with us. It was a big house, and they you know they went to church, the so that Lord, was the Our Lady of Lord Lords the Parish, Catholic. yeah. We were in the and the priest came over once in a while. It was always scary, you know. <laughs> As, you know I think it's designed to scare us. I mean, children, Catholic, yeah, of uh, an <laughs> right. Italian yeah. descent, yeah, I can understand the whole, this. The whole uh, effect is a little frightening. Yeah, As I was trying to bring my daughter into a church the other day just to look around. She's like that's scary. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, there's a dead guy hanging from yeah, a piece her, of wood with blood uh, coming at him. It's dark. Yeah. yeah, so. yeah. Um, what did your parents do? My mother um, was a serials librarian at the Lippincott Library, University of Pennsylvania. My father was a psychoanalyst. Okay. Um, so when I was growing up, I mean, he had a, a lot of, he used to be a teacher in the Philadelphia school system. Um, and, um, you know, he worked for Social Social Security Administration, because he could speak, I don't know how many languages, you know, more than a a dozen languages. Gee, how do he how does he, he? up... He just in... had a facility for it. I have the complete opposite facility. I, did, I can't yeah. pick up, you know, which even gets into music, it makes music even was difficult for me. Mm-hmm. Um, um, but, uh... Yeah, so that was, um... Yeah, he was a journalist for a short period of time, too, in the 60s, and... Also, uh, head of um, he was head of Veterans uh, for Peace mm-hmm. in the uh, 1960s, and so I kind of grew up in that was anti-war he a veteran. No, he was a World War II veteran. Okay. Yeah, he was a conscientious objector, um, but uh, he became a medic, and he served in the Philippines. And he was a when they learned he could speak Japanese,
0: mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> uh, he was a tr- translator for uh, interrogators in Korea. Okay. Um, so, uh, but I, you know, just like that generation, I never got that much information yeah, know, from yeah. him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Certain it. people tend to be very close that. Yeah, about it's interesting. It's, it seems to be very consistent amongst that generation is, you know, unless you're quizzing them about it, they're not going to speak about it. Yeah, yeah, I understand that. Well, what were you like as a young person? Um. What were
0: your interests? What did you do? You
1: know, I, I was interested in, in birds from, you know, nature. So, um, Do you still have an interest in birds? Not like I used to, okay. you know, I, I have an interest in nature in general but um, the birds got me into photography because mm-hmm. uh, I needed to photograph the birds so I had to get professional equipment so that led to 35mm camera and longer lenses and tripods and um, I, I was really into that, into the naturalist um, thing and uh, I used to actually participate in uh, Audubon bird censuses every Christmas, uh, you know, and it was like published in, you know, a scientific journal for a sighting when I was probably like 12 or 13, was yeah. Well, yeah, you know, for an unusual sighting, um, but, uh, when I got into music, yeah, the, I think I dropped the, birds out the window. yeah, yeah, mute, yeah, I think by the time I was a freshman in, in high school, I stopped, uh, going on those sort of things, just wasn't as interested in it anymore.
0: Yeah, a lot of the interview subjects, uh, for some reason, have a great interest in birds, and it comes up pretty often, mostly huh. the other way around. Like, they were very involved in music, and then they became very involved in birds and birding.
1: Yeah, I mean, I could get into it again. I just I wish I had the time or, you know, the facility to find, you know, go get to places. Yeah. Um, you know, maybe when I'm an old retiree, I will, <laughs> get I will do that alone. again. But, um... Yeah, I, I mean I still was interested in it but I just, you know, was I drifted away and I got more involved in music. And well, how did the music then come into your life? Um, well, I mean I was I was interested in like disco. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, you know, my aunt uh lived in the city and she had a lot of parties and there would be they'd be these big disco parties and there would be you know, um very strange people there, just a great mix of people. You know, mm-hmm. I remember, and I used to bartend those parties for a few bucks. But how How old are you bartending uh, at a disco party? Gotta be like twelve. Um, yeah, 12, so everybody's on board with you. Yeah, twelve. But they love my bartending because it uh-huh. just make these incredibly stiff drinks. Um, are you drinking yourself on, on no, the side? No, you make these? things? no, I didn't drink. Right. Uh, no, I, I, I was what i'd be doing was like mixing up these drinks to see if i could take the tarnish off of pennies and stuff like that. <laughs> right. that's what i thought it was about, you know. Are you wearing well, a leisure suit while you do this? Yeah, i no i don't, you know, remember, but i remember then getting into like, you know, into the disco thing. Um and then that led into getting into Prince and, you know, the early Michael Jackson like off the wall that, you know, before, you know, it got weird. Mm-hmm. Um and i was also listening to glam and stuff like that. My my cousin Ernie Gave me a lot of his old records in '45. So I had like this whole like 1970s, um, you know, stack of uh, 45 singles. that a Bowie Yeah, and I got into Bowie. And then I would give him some of my mother's eight tracks of, you know, like Sinatra and stuff. And he would tape like Diamond Dogs and things on top of you know, yeah. that. And I'd be like, yeah. this is awesome. Um, and um, so I had that background as well and then when I was a freshman in high school my freshman um English teacher Bill Belt who we were still friends friendly um he made a tape for me and I think you know it had Costello and things like that but also had had Clash a lot of English early English punk and stuff and mm-hmm. I had the Clash's first album on that right yeah and this is a good gateway drug into the world the of Clash's punk. first yeah. album yeah that was raw and it was I was totally like this is so Cool. Mm-hmm. This is, um you know, and I, I also dug the politics in it too.
0: Yeah. And it also would have been something contemporary for its time, I and mean, it wasn't. Yeah, I mean, it you was know, but you know, it's weird. Years like years we old. think
1: back ten years now, like nothing, like yeah. that, like it, that came out ten years ago. I mean, I remember getting into the Clash and be like, oh man, this is already like over, you know? Mm-hmm. And it was like what, like three years ago, you know, like <laughs> yeah. London. I mean, I remember when London Calling came out, and I mean, because it was a hit song. You know, there was, it was, there was hits on that album. Yeah, that was, I think, what, seven eighty Yeah, like, 79, 70, 80, yeah, okay, yeah. yeah. And so, but I was, it, I didn't get me, like, I didn't buy the album until later. And then, um, so I got into, that, that just, I got into punk. I got, then I got the Pistols, and I was totally um, enamored in that, in that 70s English punk mm-hmm. thing. Well, Ramones, too. I mean, I wasn't as happy about the Ramones because they just weren't as politically savvy as, you know, uh, or even they could be, like, right-wing, you know, because uh, of Johnny, but... Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I guess people really didn't hear it, it could go either it. way, like, yeah. yeah. Um, but, you know, I still loved the Ramones. I saw them, like, plenty of times, and I even f- had a photo op with them once, and that was great. Nice. Um, but... Yeah, that, that whole English punk scene was, and I got in heavily into the Stiff Little Fingers, and then that led to, you know, reggae and getting into reggae. Um, and I then I just started hitting the, you know, used record stores and getting old and used, imports, Sham 69 and stuff mm-hmm. like that. So, um, you know, that was a great time. Like, exploring music then was really exciting. You know, to go to a used record store, and there's, like, you know, an English import for, like, Three ninety nine or something like that. Yeah. You know, it was really affordable and you could take risks. It didn't make, you know...
0: Where were you getting the records from?
1: Mostly Plastic Fantastic. And that in, was... Like, they were in Ardmore. Okay. There was another store in Ardmore. They moved out to Bryn Mawr later on. Um, I mean, I would go to 3rd Street Jazz, too.
0: hmm
1: You know, that was... You know, that was a very... Uh, that later became more go-to place. Right. Yeah. You know.
0: So it was always the politics then... From when you initially discovered well i love it. that i
1: i did i think what really got me jazzed by it was you know here's here's um here's art and politics mm-hmm. you know here's music with a purpose yeah it's engaging with yeah, the, the time and you know we were and it we're coming out of you know sort of you know the, that that period that was developing all around culturally it was like you know big hair and purposelessness you know yeah, yeah huh. um, and materialism and you know material girl type stuff so right. it was um, it was a you know it was perfect counter to it and it just it was very welcome for me so that I think that must have been 81 82 and um, I think for a long time I was like just living in the past I was like I, I was you know I wish it was like 77 yeah. you know and I, f- I mean it's hard to believe it was like five years earlier yeah it that, felt, that, that, that seems it as could as have true. been the Beatles like 64 or something like mm-hmm. that that's yeah. what it felt like to me like that was so you know it was so already have I think I don't think... The Clash hadn't broken up yet. You know, I think... Then they put out Sandinista, and I was like, oh, what's this? You know? You yeah, know like it took me a long time that to get into the album. Actually, It also took a long time to listen to the whole, yeah, the whole record. Yeah, with three platters on that yeah. thing. Yeah. And uh, you know, it was a great deal, actually. Who puts out a triple album? You know? And, but... Um, so that... I was really... I was really living in that space, and I was aware of, har- of hardcore. I was listening to KDU and, like, Jeff Jenkins' show. Mm. You know, um, it was radically insane off-the-wall tunes or something. And, and most of that stuff, I just was like, what the hell is that? You know, it was like, really... So you s- saw a sharp definition... Between hardcore between and and, and sort of English uh, yeah, the the punk. punk. Yeah. <laughs> a, a big... You know, there was a big divide. I mean, I think... Um, it took me a little while get, getting used to the hardcore. You know, because for, for a long part I just wanted, you know, I just wanted to be, you know, pogoing and, you right. know, so you a maybe more, seven, more melodic. Yeah, you know, right. I mean, yeah. and more, that, yeah, I guess in retrospect, that's poppy, you know, yeah, that's yeah. That, that London punk scene. Um, but then 83 comes around and it had to be Rock for Light Mm-hmm. I remember re- here's, a, I remember reading this, and I thought this was incredible. There was a little like two inch column review like Tom Moon did of Rock for Light when it when the when the LP came out.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, I think I probably had the the Ror cassette of mm-hmm. like the earlier stuff, but it was like oh man, that was still a little. The production's really muddy yeah, on that it was on hard that to, tape. Yeah, yeah. Um, it didn't really it didn't really get me like Rock for Light's like holy shit, you know. Yeah. Um, and to this day, you know, that album still holds That's up the, the just as strongly yeah, yeah. as, and then Out of Step came out that year. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Right. So that was like a one-two punch between, and then that both, they're both DC bands. And, um, then I was like, I'm, I'm totally all in. I'm like, this, the hardcore's, you know, it's got it. This is, this can be done. I think it was a like, I think it was the pr- lack of professionalism on a lot of the bands kind of compared to. Those English bands um, that um, maybe threw me in the beginning, I just wasn't as interested in them. Um, but then when I heard those albums, you know, and they were produced so well and they had so much energy in them. Mm-hmm.
0: And I guess if you're looking for an engagement politically, hardcore seems to, at least for some of the bands, take it up a few notches oh, yeah, in terms of right. like direct, and even,
1: right, even, and, exactly.
0: Um, and it's also your time now. That
1: yeah, these records are coming out right. rather than. Right, yeah, right. It was, it was, that was, that might have been the cr- the crest of that first hardcore wave was probably eighty three or something. At least from my experience, or on the East Coast. Um, so I think I started to yeah get really you know here in WKDU now my out shows and things like that. I think I probably started going out to shows in in like early eighty three. And where were you starting? Um, to I'm trying, to you that? know, I remember, like, I think the first thing I show I ever went to, I didn't get in, was Pill was playing at the Eastside Club. Mm-hmm. So, I went down, I think I was, I just turned 16, so no, I, no, No yeah. Dyson getting let into that show? Yeah, and I, you know, I, I was old enough to drive down there, but, um, parents, bar, my parents kind of went out there, but, but, um, yeah, I remember just hanging out, and just, like, just digging the people, like, hanging outside the club there, and it was, you know, then it was downtown, t- Chestnut Street, and it was just kind of seedy and scary, mm-hmm. actually. You know. Yeah,
0: different, different than yeah, what the city looks like now. Yeah, like now really, but...
1: you know, very noirish quality of it.
0: Um, and probably an interesting group of people there. You know, sporting very wildly yeah. different
1: uh, attire and manner of presenting themselves. So I'm not, you know, and other, you know, that would go to Third Street Jazz, and they had on the this huge poster wall on the side of the um, store. Maybe it wasn't even their property, but it was on the side, and it was maybe abandoned property. And it it always had posters on it. So that was the go-to place to find out what's going on, was, Mm -hmm. you know, go look at some records and then check the wall out. Um, You know, if you don't hear it announced on KDU, um, you know, it's great. Like, KDU would probably announce, oh, yeah, like, Minutemen are playing in someone's basement in West Philadelphia. (laughs) You know, like, it would be like, like, oh, you know, between, I guess, those points... Uh, I would hear about shows, and then I think, I can't remember what my first real show was. I can't remember if it was like the CEC Center. I'm thinking it might have been at the Better Youth Organization Hall, uh, which we were discussing earlier. Like We need to know more about that, because I just caught the last probably couple shows that they had there uh, before it might have got shut down or... You know do you remember who you saw for any of the shows you there? know I can hardly remember I can't I remember the skate ramp they had in it like mm-hmm. it was this narrow uh, like 1840s you know uh, live work type of narrow building made have been 18 20 feet wide and each floor like something was going on like bands playing on one floor and then one floor is just a you know a plywood ramp that was like the whole you just walk in floor? it was just a ramp. <laughs> wow. you know? Did you uh, skate? And the, I I skated at the time, but I was never that that good. I was you know I was I always got uh, screwed up pretty bad on ramps. You know, was a street skater. Okay. Um. That's how I got to meet uh, the other guys, and the, we formed a legitimate reason was through skating. But right. Um. So I I'm I'm trying to remember. Did you see crucifix?
0: I know that they played there. That, that
1: might have been, that might have been one of the shows there. I'm trying to remember. I mean, at the time, I was like, I was so new to it. Yeah. Um, it didn't even matter who was playing. You know. Yeah. A yeah. I hear that shows, from a lot of people, and I know yeah. that. You know, it's just, it's the scene. It's. It the, it's didn't the matter. Yeah. You would go to shows. You you know who the hell was playing? You know, it was just like that's the shows going on this weekend, and you know that's the place to be. Did you have friends who were also into hardcore that you were going to the shows with? Not so much from, like, my school. You know, I, I hung out with um, one of my friends, Tim Brody, was, I think his sister was older and sort of into music. I think that might have gone down with, to see Pill with him that night. I think we started going to shows together, mm-hmm. and a couple of my friends from uh, school would come down with me. And that, probably for the first year, i just hang out with them at shows, and... Uh, i didn't really engage the scene that that strongly um as far as on a personal level I was always kind of shy and um, you know kind of be something of a wallflower unless I was you know, you know get into the pit
0: you right. so you were getting into the yeah pit. <laughs> uh-huh.
1: yeah but the, and that was kind of you know it, it took a while to kind of work is like jumping into the pool, like, oh, I don't want to jump in the pool, but... But <laughs> yeah. uh, the, the pool you know, is like a roiling mess of people yeah, smashing into each other. It not- was, you know, and I remember, yeah, I'm trying to remember, what was the first time I, like, you know, got into the circle and thought, wow, how great it was and how, you know, oh, it's not that dangerous, really. Maybe, you know, eventually, you know, get hit with something, but... Yeah.
0: <laughs> Inevitably, you're going to collide
1: with something, Yeah, but elbow. it was, I don't never remember getting injured, like, yeah. in a way that I would remember. You know. it,
0: for the early shows, did you have the impression that the scene was welcoming to people like you coming into it, or did it yeah. feel really clickish? Or how? well,
1: it did feel it was a little clickish, but it wasn't at all threatening. Yeah. You know, it looked threatening. Yeah, yeah, of that's course. what yeah. was you know kind of very interesting about it because it it looked tough, and still punk was like that style was still not. No, anywhere in your mainstream.
0: Yeah, you wouldn't you know, see that until I guess, right? like
1: the early '90s or late '80s. Yeah, so um, punk still like you know you still were like minority material, mm-hmm. um, and f- were far out. And I, but I but I the scene the Philly scene I always respected it for being more casual as far as like the dress code went. Like mm-hmm. you know, um, it wasn't really big except for you know there was that click like the circle of shit click which was totally into the you know london you know gbh and you know how high can your hawk go <laughs> right um then that it must have seemed at least somewhat anachronistic
0: even at that point to see people it, you yeah, know, doing that it did. it did
1: i mean it was a flavor and it, it was kind of you know and i don't think anyone put it down overtly in a way but it was um it was a it was just an added spice to the scene. But I think most of the people in the scene were like, you know, just kind of jeans, T-shirt. I think Philly may have done the flannel around the waist uh, yeah. first. You know? Before California. Oh, my God, 10 years. Yeah, yeah. well, maybe, maybe L.A. got, you know. But, but um, anyway, that was, I remember the flannels, you know, whether you're either wearing it or around the waist, um, that was about the only dress item that seemed to be... Uh, Prerequisite. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I know
0: that when I came into things, that was still you know, yeah. something that a lot of people wore. Yeah, that. And, that and, uh, you know, either docks or army boots. Yeah, So it's kind of the the hardcore look, kind of it's yeah. stripped down. Yeah, but not so much
1: hard. on the chains things, you know. Yeah, yeah. You know, just, just an accent of chain, mm-hmm. you know, not not a lot of clinking chains.
0: Now I know that there were ultimately some conflicts with with certain segments of the scene in Philadelphia with some of the circle of shit people and and the their hate edge that they espoused yeah. to to whatever degree they actually genuinely espoused it. Did you have interaction with with Brew Baker and and these folks? Was there
1: anything? Not not really. I mean, I really wasn't interested, and in, I just didn't think they were all that serious. You know, I thought they were mostly apathetic about things, so I wasn't interested in it, you know, um, you know, Baker brought a lot of attention to the scene, so, um...
0: Did you feel that that I, was welcoming well, I
1: attention or, or positive attention? No, you know, probably wasn't, actually. Um, it does seem like the media just wants to find that stuff, so actually, if you want attention, being anti-social is one of the best ways to do it, and I think that's what really did a lot of harm to the whole punk scene nationally was because it looked violent, Mm -hmm. like the circle dancing and the stage diving and, you know, the threatening gestures. It looked violent, but you wouldn't like see, you know, you weren't necessarily like stretchers bringing people out of there, right? right? right. I'd never see anyone really too badly hurt. But I think
0: maybe sometimes when people see that violence in media, young people, they think, oh... I'm going for that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so, then it becomes... genuine. So the media
1: advertises it as a violent culture. Yeah. Next thing you know, you got 50 violent people showing up who that's all they want to do. Yeah. It's like, you know, this is an opportunity to get a, you know, a sucker punch in on somebody.
0: Yeah, and they're probably more genuinely violent than Mohawk Mania guy who espouses yeah. this to draw attention to himself. And then winds up getting clocked in the head
1: by, yeah. you know, a doofus skinhead from the suburbs. So that's... That... You know, I, I, I can blame the media for a big part of that. Is because that's the only part they would want to show. Mm-hmm. They wouldn't show the positive aspect. Like here's young people doing their own thing, making yeah, can, their own culture for the homeless, cancer food for the homeless. <laughs> yeah, like right, yeah. right. Yeah, the benefits. All oh, I mean, there's so many benefits. You know, yeah. so many benefit. It was like a, a quarter of the concerts were like benefit concerts.
0: Yeah.
1: So, I don't. You know, that's just the way the media works. That's the way they did. You know, that's how they like destroyed the Pistols tour. You know, when they came, it's just like oh, that every I remember seeing the pistols on the nightly news. Mm-hmm. You know, and it would only be because you know all oh, the violence or you know it totally ruined their U.S. tour apparently. Yeah, I, mean, I didn't see the that them play, but um, <clears throat> you know it just the, the media said this is a violent thing, and you know look at the violent stuff they do, and then it brought out a lot of violent people out to the shows.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But I don't think Philly ever suffered too heavily from. Too many of those people, and I think the scene was pretty good about ejecting people who created problems. Some yeah. self-policing. That I think that was the other really good thing. Is I, that's why I felt kind of safe there as sort of someone as an outsider coming in in the early part. and like the, um, it must have been yeah, 82, 83 and I didn't know anybody, but I didn't feel like at all. I felt. You know, it's kind of welcoming people, like, say hi, and be friendly, and recognize people. Yeah.
0: Um I suppose probably most of these people were all outsiders, you know, all coming in. They're probably one of, you know, two mm-hmm. or three people like that in their school. Yeah. All converging on yeah. the subway and the trolley together. And then, you know, they can kind of form. But they probably all come in, you know, little, little trickles, and then create the little stream.
1: Um, I didn't get more involved in the scene until... Um, I met, you know, Grant Plunkett and Dan Dillon, Joe Gallagher and um you know, they were they were probably more involved in the scene to begin with. And um I met them on South Street some probably I'm trying to think, when did I meet them? maybe it's either eighty four, eighty five. I just I just can't think
0: did, did you, out, you meet them yeah. kind of by, by sight, like a look at, you know, you're wearing these clothes and I'm wearing these, so it's te- yeah, it telegraphs skating around. that
1: were... Yeah. yeah, I was skating with some of my friends on on South Street and, you know, they were down there too. And we just started talking. Um, maybe we recognized each other from shows. Mm-hmm. Can't remember. Obviously, like, you know, it wasn't a question about what you were into. You kind of knew what that was. Yeah. Um, they said they were thinking about forming a band. Did any of them play... And Music. I, I had gotten a guitar, I think my cousin Ernie gave me an old, I had an old guitar. It was awful, you know, and it, excuse me, and an amp. But I was starting to, you know, pick off the, the chords from, you know, Clash and, you know, Stiff Little Fingers albums and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And, um, so, I mean, I knew something. I had a cousin in Jersey who's an awesome guitar player, and, uh... When he turned out I was playing, starting to play, I used to go down there and I used to buy equipment from him. So I bought my first uh, guitar from him and then later I bought a you know, Marshall 50-watt combo from him when we were actually starting to play. Mm-hmm. But he no ta- formal... Oh. No, he taught me uh, a couple... Uh, he taught me some chords, yeah. Uh, and then I got chord books. Um, and he taught me a little bit on how to play lead, mm-hmm. you know. And... Um, you talk I you know I'd learn each show you know a couple of van halen licks and things like that I was like wow well, well, I can do that um and so I that's where I was when I met the guys from Mayfair you know essentially like those and they were from the opposite side of the city uh but we would get together I think you know we got together over my house at first and started practicing Grant could play drums decently although I don't think he had a set yet um, Dan had a bass, I just like, I sh- you know, Dan's the, the only, I think, that I know, musician that really went on to become, he's a musician, mm-hmm, you know, right. you know, there's no doubt about it, <laughs> you know, no one's going to debate it, he's a, he's a great musician, but at that time, he just got this bass from I don't know where, and he didn't know how to play, I mean, so I was just like, here's the chords, all you have to do is kind of see where I'm on the fretboard, you right. know, and just hold, hold that note down. <laughs> so um, that's how we started out. And it took a little while for him. And, um, well, Grant, Grant was pretty much a natural good drummer, you know. Um, and then we said, well, we want to be a band. And that's the whole thing. Like, that whole, that whole scene made you want to be in a band. because um, yeah, there was the the bar no barrier. There was yeah, no yeah, barrier yeah, yeah. Yeah, right, to yeah. it. The only barrier was you needed some equipment and you needed a place to where you could play on, you know, molested. Mm-hmm. And your parents were on board with you
0: making this... Yeah, yeah. Cacophantum noise in their house.
1: I mean, I, I we're in the basement, not that much. We later, when we got serious, moved to Grant's basement. Mm-hmm. Um, and that became like our really like headquarters. Um, and um, so that we we started practicing there. Um, and that was tough for me because I'd take the elevated there. It would be like two-hour ride, you know, to get out there. I'd take the bus from my house to to uh, 69th Street, mm-hmm. take the elevated all the way from one end to the other, the Bridge and Pratt, and then mm-hmm. hop on another bus. Um, and in the wintertime, that could be really depressing. <laughs> I can believe that. You know? yeah. <laughs> and then take a bus to Mayfair. Um, my, my, you know, my amp, aunt, my, aunt, my stage amp was there and practice. And... But we, you know, we're pretty serious about it. And I think, you know, those records that came out in 83 were pretty influential in that sound Mm -hmm. uh, is what we really wanted to do. And I think we really, um, um, you know, worked hard to try and have a polished, fast, hardcore sound. Right. Uh,
0: And Legitimate Reason seems like a quintessential 80s hardcore band name. Like, there's no way that 1989 (laughs) would turn to 1990 without somebody coming up with that as a band name.
1: Yeah, I I I guess it sounded right. Uh, Joe Gallagher, I think, came up with it, uh, the singer. Um, yeah, we, we puzzled over the name for a while, um, and we already had a few songs. I think we put together a demo tape, and again, I don't know when, maybe, it must have been 86. Um, I graduated high school in 85, um, so I think over that summer, 85, we must have been practicing and putting, putting material together. Mm-hmm. You
0: did a uh, demo, and did you do any other recordings uh,
1: that were released? Yeah, well, later, um, Dave Rave asked us to do us um, for some material for a compilation he was putting out. So he was putting out uh, Disc Pan Hands. Yeah, it was a classic, really uh, yeah. compilation. So we're like, if we're going to be on that, there was no way we're using this demo tape we did. Yeah. You know, actually, uh, that tape resurfaced... <laughs> Somebody dubbed it on, you know, oh, this online, personally. yeah, and I'm like, oh man, that's out there. <laughs> Did uh, you go back and listen to uh, it? Yeah, and I'm like, ooh. <laughs> um, but you know, for what it was, it it's it still, you know, it still has some effect. I mean, there's some there's some decent tracks on it. Hmm. We I think we recorded that in my basement on a four track, and I was getting into recording then. I was really I really liked the process of recording, so. Um, I mean, I think I did an okay job with that as best I could in a, in a tinny basement. Yeah. Um, but then, but then when we had that opportunity to actually be on uh, vinyl, we're like, let's go and do this right. So at the time I, I graduated in high school 85 and I went to college in Washington, uh, at George Washington University. Um... And, so you were um, living in, in Washington then. Yeah, the and I was then. living down there. So that made it harder. I mean, I, I think that first year I came up a bit to, for practices um, and we decided to go down. Um, oh, I'm trying to think when we booked the time at Inner Ear. I remember going over there and, and talking to Don Santara and um, you know checking out the place. And I remember going over Discord House and... You know, checking out, you know, Ian give, giving a tour around and... How did, how did you come to meet Ian and, and get that tour? Um, you know what, I think... Well, I mean, I was going to like Embrace... I mean, at the time, I think it was the end of the Embrace period. And I, I was like... Since I was a big Minor Threat fan, I'd immediately go to Embrace shows. Although, I didn't enjoy them as much as I, you know, enjoyed Minor Threat. I didn't think they had as much power... Uh, or just what I was looking for in a band at the time. But... um trying to think how, well, I, for almost all my college years, I worked for a production company, um, I think it was IMP Productions, they're like the biggest concert producer in, in D.C., but, uh, George, um, Washington University had a, this thing called a program board, and I got recruited my first week at school there, you know, the, the, uh, (coughs) the somebody from the program board saw the way I was dressed and said, you know, you'd probably be interested in our organization. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'd go to the, the meeting and, you know, the first meeting they just had, like, and this is in the university, you know, uh, student building. Yeah. There's like five cases of beer piled up for the organization <laughs> of like first year of the, the meeting. I'm like, okay. oh, that's kind of cool. And, uh, um, and, and, uh, I got involved with them, and they would they would help promote concerts. So they they could um, they would get a hundred thousand dollar budget, I believe, at the beginning of the year to program events for the school. Mm-hmm. And it was pretty much run by punk rock people in there. So you can get a lot out of that budget. Yeah. You're about oh, the punks. no, we, we we you know we, we I remember booked REM to play mm-hmm. in the school uh, basketball gym you know, the little thing, worth. and, you know, you could get them for probably $10,000, mm-hmm. and um, you would make a lot more on the show, Not yet, you though. know, and actually you would make money, but, but Ian worked for that company too, mm-hmm. so we would be like rolling in equipment and out, you know, setting up uh, sound towers and stuff, you know, speaker towers, and so that's how I got to know Ian, um, and um, I later, I worked... They also ran the 930 Club, so I also did the same sort of thing for 930. Mm -hmm. So I always was employed, (laughs) Um, either with my photography through... the, I I was the editor for the school newspaper photo editor for a couple years. Uh, And then I was... The production company kept me, you know, uh, kept money in my pocket for the five years I lived in D.C. Mm -hmm. Um, Plus, I... There would, I'd never pay for a show. It didn't matter if it was U2 or an RFK Stadium, I could make, you know, contact, and I'd have, like, a press box. Oh, uh-huh, not nice. You yeah, know? Yeah. <laughs> uh, it was really great time, and so I I kind of got used to never paying for shows, and whether it was going, you know, or shows in Philly. What were the shows? Like, five bucks? Yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I, I remember once a friend said, you know, you want to go over Discord and... <clears throat> You know, get a tour and get to the place You um, know, I haven't really hung out with Ian that much. Um, and we didn't become, we're not like friends. So that's why I, I think I asked him to produce our record. He's like, yeah, I just do it for, you know, close friends of mine. So mm-hmm. he's busy anyway. But Were you, were you put <laughs> off by that or were you, okay? Uh, I was, you know, I understood it. Yeah, I was like, yeah, you know, he doesn't, we're not from D.C. <clears throat> yeah. um, he, he recommended Eli, Janny. Um, whose brother played in Ripes of Spring and <clears throat> he was playing in a band called Rain then um, <clears throat> and he was a young, little younger than us um, but he was, he was uh, working uh, studying as an apprentice with Don Santara at the studio so he knew the studio really mm-hmm. well and, and, and Interview was, was really well known in Hardcore for having produced you know, some oh classic my God. records you know, yeah, Hamburg, yeah. I, you know, that is an amazing uh, discography that comes out of that that basement. I mean, later they moved to a more professional space, but that was when it was in Don's basement. Mm-hmm. Um, so had
0: you had heard those
1: records and then thought, "Yeah, I want to
0: get that kind of sound." Yeah, and I was
1: things. surprised. Like when I first went over there, I'm like, "It's just this little button of a suburban house in Arlington, Virginia," and <clears throat> but then in the basement was just, you know, a nice little control room and a nice little recording studio, and it was just perfect. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Um yeah, so that, that that's when we get back to Dave Raves thing. We, we went to and booked some time. Um, band came down and we stayed for a couple days. I think we might have recorded one day or two days. You know how it's never more than you know yeah. what we could ever afford um you're doing the EP track and then did you do or not EP the the
0: compilation track and then
1: you do it yeah as we well? did um, I think we booked enough time to do like four or five songs mm-hmm. um, and and then later I went down and mixed it with Eli and he added a little piano and we did a little did a I did a couple little I don't know it's almost like Pink Floyd like stuff mm-hmm. the, to um, segue one of the tracks Um, but I was totally, and I was getting more and more into the production side of music. And at the time I was thinking, well, maybe I want to become like an engineer or, you know, I really want to be in the studio all the time. Mm -hmm. Um, and it was really, that, that was, um, before I was really discovered that I, uh, my skills were in photography. Um, so at the time I was like, how do you, you know, I want to get a studio, but it's really expensive. Um, and, uh, it was difficult to just get into a studio to you know to work because everybody wanted to do that. Um, so, but I did get some time with them and with Shutter to Think later. You know, yeah, I'd like a to decent to amount of that. time yeah. with them in the studio, and they did a lot more sophisticated stuff in the studio as well than we ever did.
0: Well, with legitimate reason. Then you were living in D.C., uh, going up to Philly to play. Yeah, that shows.
1: first year, that freshman year, coming up, I guess, coming up to play shows pretty often. So. Where were you playing? The crypt. um, I remember the Kennel Club played there a few times. I like, and I used that was another place I used to go to. That was a great club. Um, Why don't you describe that a a little bit? Or Kennel Club was, I think, like Twelfth and Walnut around there. It's been demolished. It's just a park. It's the parking lot next to Fergie's. Okay. All right. You know, like the, where if you were going to park next to Fergie's place. That's where it was, but it was on the Walnut Street side. Mm-hmm. And it was a big, you know, row building. Um, again, it was like multiple floors. Uh, it was pretty laissez-faire. I mean, I was just thinking today when I saw that the um, Force Field art, art installation was just got an email, oh, we're not doing it tonight. It was like a big thing. And was that thing canceled? Yeah, because uh, L and I. Oh. You know, and I'm thinking, where was El and I back then? I don't remember them getting in our hair about Somebody had the events. Well, I mean, how could the Crypt off? go yeah. for so long? You know, I don't know what the legacy of the Crypt was, but that was a great place. I think. Yeah, what do you talk about that place as well? Uh, I mean, where, where was that, and what was that uh, like? That is now like the culinary, it's a culinary school in that building. It was, I think, it's on Wal- Walnut at um, like. 40th 41st something or right right around there pointed out mm-hmm. um but it was like a squat house i mean it wasn't like squat i think they actually rented it but at that time you could probably rent a building giant townhome, in west philadelphia for probably 700 or something and have yeah. like 10 people live in it yeah <clears throat> um so they had a basement not much of a basement and they would put on shows there regularly um I'm trying to remember the I think I saw I know, just like Soundgarden in there. I mean, it was just like you know they could get some big shows. Anybody almost could play there. I think we probably played some of our first shows there. Um, I remember someone. I'm glad I wasn't there. You know, there's a famous incident with Gigi Allen there. I don't know if you ever get that on tape. Uh, no, you should, t- you should tell I, it. Well, oh, I wasn't there. I yeah. only heard from. You could tell it secondhand. Uh, um,
0: was it feces uh, flying? Through? Yeah, he
1: did an he did an enema on stage. Delightful. And, and then he squirted it on the audience. Oh, that's lovely. And uh, I think it was my friend Klain, uh just went up on the stage and just you know clocked them, and then he did, and everybody just <laughs> jumped on him and beat. And beat, beat the shit. What the hell do they him? expect though? Like I always wondered. I mean, I always have, he had to I be had... rescued, like from that gig, and I think yeah. I think he might have, you know, hobbled out of there and like, run out of that show. But but when on one to stunt too many. <laughs> I never knew what people thought they would
0: get in seeing him perform. I mean, I had the opportunity a few yeah. times, and I always elected not to because I don't want his well, shit again, in my
1: head. He got a lot of media, right? Yeah. yeah. Not, you know, mainstream media, but like in the punk rock media, I mean, you'd have to write about that guy, so oh, everyone would yeah. be curious course to, be to go with. and see. I, I I don't think I ever... I don't know if I ever saw him play, actually, but um, I'm thinking uh, Revival mm-hmm. was, you know, another... That was a great place. Um, and, you know, people would come down from New York, and so I remember seeing uh, Firehose there, and... um all the sonic youth people were like in the audience, it's like, you know, and did you know that that's yeah, who they, yeah. they were? It's yeah, I like, yeah. oh man. I guess they cut up
0: pretty yeah. significant.
1: And, um, a revival, oh, of course Club Pizzazz came later and that was a great place. Big, you know, big venue. Um, Abe's Steakhouse. Mm-hmm. And you know, we played there, probably one of our early shows, it was Abe's Steakhouse. Um, that place was always weird. You know, I remember once, like, you had to walk past this narrow deli mm-hmm. to get the back room where the shows were. Man. And um, I remember once there was some crazy guy, like, reached around the deli and got this big carving knife <laughs> and was like... He, he, nobody could get in and out of the show because this guy was like this cr- crazed guy. He wasn't a punk, he wasn't seen he was some, Is this part of Abe's army as it's been referred to?
0: Like the crazy folks that Abe essentially took care of? Maybe. Great,
1: I, I mean, yeah, he was a generous guy, I imagine. Um, just the neighborhood was rough, you know, it was mm-hmm. just like it was a ghetto-y neighborhood. Yeah. Right? And it was Just because Penn was you know, three or four blocks away didn't make any difference, that area. And it's still a little raggle-taggle in oh, that yeah. area. Um, I think it was like 40th and Market. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's still a bit dodgy over yeah. there. Yeah. Despite um, the tentacles yeah, of Yeah, this university. is 20, 20 years, 25 years later. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, this guy came in there, and he was a crazy guy, like homeless crazy guy, and he he got this knife, and he was threatening people with the knife. I was like, oh, shit, you know, people are <laughs> stuck in the club, people yeah. wanted to get in, and this guy's in between in front of the deli waving this big, like, 12-inch knife. And I'm, I remember, like... He's like, I want a piece of ham. And, uh, <laughs> give the like, piece I'm, of like, ham. And I said, I'm like, give the guy a piece of ham. Give <laughs> yeah. him a piece of ham. So they gave him a piece of ham and that was it all we knew. Uh, that was all the, was the a situation. A piece yeah, of ham. yeah, we got the knife from yeah, that's him. That good. And uh, <laughs> <it> was, <laughs> But that was the, you know, kinda of crazy stuff to happen. But again, I don't remember any just witnessing any real tragedies or or violence. I'm probably fortunate that I just, you know, it didn't eclipse with the uh, any of the violent scenes that did happen. Mm-hmm. I know that Dan and and John and, and you know uh, they're a little younger than me and they're you know much more hyperactive um, and they all and they were great. It would take no shit, you know, from racists. You know who wanted to try and penetrate the scene and or, or espouse that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, I think there was a, a greater influx of that in the late '80s
0: into early '90s with mm-hmm. all the skinheads coming in, especially from the, the from Atlantic City and then from uh, suburban parts of yeah. uh, of Philly or Pennsylvania. Well, at
1: Fufillia. that time, I mean, they couldn't make really much inroads in the scene because it was pretty, like I said, it self-policing. Yeah, and I think that you know, also, I, I mean, people would. You know, what I'm thinking of those times is like it was all self-policing. I remember the police being a big problem for us. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, occasionally, but they wouldn't come down hard on us like, you know, like other cities. I, I'm thinking the city may have just been um, relaxing after the Rizzo era, mm-hmm. and the country as a whole was sort of getting off the violent trip with the end of the Vietnam War. I'm thinking now it's a special period between like 75 and 85, where, you know, the country was did change for a while. I mean, you know, the the, the control system kind of took a lot of blows in the mid late 70s, mm-hmm. and they they lost a lot of power and and they weren't really uh, like I don't I'm trying to think I don't remember like thinking oh there's going to be uh, you know informers cops or any you know nobody. There was no.
0: Yeah, I guess there was nothing. No really, agents in the crowd. Yeah, there was nothing really going on. I mean, it wasn't yeah. like it was a great open air drug market. I mean, surely like, there were some people yeah, who were no, doing drugs, what? but it wasn't like a, there was a great exchange of it. Yeah, a,
1: and I don't think you know the, the the kid people doing hard drugs. It just wasn't that it was kept very quiet. I think later, I think later on, I started to see more of that uh, creep in, like '86, maybe '87. Right? What heroin? Yeah, mm-hmm. you know heroin and that, and just things getting a little more. Dirtier and nastier. And how did you feel about that? I mean what I take it you weren't straight-edge, but no I, I don't imagine
0: you were on the heroin train. No,
1: <laughs> no, no. I mean, you know th- There's like there's like benign drugs and then there's you know There's drugs that are really poisonous, you know, mm-hmm. and dangerous and you really can't mess around with like stuff like you know heroin it's addictive right off the first You know try, right, you yeah. know um, You're like, oh yeah, I need more of that, you know <laughs> Yeah, uh, you should set something in your intellect off that this, the dangerous situation. Well, all you need to know? do is
0: look at all of the winners who have used that drug yeah. and what it's done for them. Everybody ends horribly in no time, so it's kind of clearly presents yeah, no, itself as it, you're a dumbass if you do right, this thing. Right,
1: you, you, you either, that's all you want to be is a drug addict, yeah. that's, that's perfect then. Yeah, there you go, climb into the yeah. corner. you know, but if, uh, you, know, you know, drinking and pot was just a normal thing at all those shows, it didn't matter where it was, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, it wasn't, like, it wasn't all over the place. It wasn't, like, you know, it was, wasn't open except for beer, Yeah. right? Drinking was just, that was just normal, like, you know. Yeah, you normal know, in all aspects of yeah, American Yeah, all the shows, even the CEC Center. I don't think, you know, you weren't supposed to bring a bottle in, but it wasn't, like, you know, as long as you were low-key about it. Yeah, I imagine if you are just holding a can in a bag. and, nope, you know, <clears throat> and I remember, like, going to homie Spot Bar and picking up 40s and going to CEC but it wasn't to get wrecked,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know. It was just, you know, it kind of put a little buzz on before you got in the pit. Right. You know, I and mean, maybe it took a little of the sting. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> out, yeah. yeah. Right. Um, but, yeah, I mean, CEC Center was a great place. I saw a lot of shows there. I was I was really into Five Story Fall. Oh, um, I've never heard that band <clears> before. Oh, I might have one of their cassettes around. And Scram. Oh, later Scram, on, yeah, Scram. yeah, yeah, yeah. But Five Story Fall really was you know, like, you know, a bunch of punks doing reggae, um, and they did it pretty well, and it had, you know, like, real, you know, positive political lyrics and things, uh, and they would just, it would be, a. I remember they played CC Center a lot, and some block parties and things like that, and I was, I was really into them, and I saw, so like, I was, the Bad Brains got me more into reggae, and mm-hmm. listened to that, um a lot more and then later in Washington D.C. there's was a huge reggae scene there's a huge Jamaican community down there so I'd see like almost every everybody and plus with the production company it was I was doing uh, you know working shows for like Jimmy Cliff and, and Ziggy Marley and yeah, no. uh, you know and that was really that was really cool
0: Who, what were some of the bands that you were playing with uh, when you were doing Legitimate Reason
1: um, Oh well I'm thinking uh uh, corrosion of Conformity, SNFU, um, <clears throat> maybe Youth it Today, I don't know if that, that show went on. Um, cheetah Chrome Motherfuckers, that was a kennel club. Um, God, you know, it's really foggy. I wish, you know, at the time you're thinking, who the fuck cares about this stuff, right? I'm just doing it, just what I'm doing on the weekends. Yeah, yeah and so you didn't I, feel I, that like didn't the didn't feel like history being yeah. it is, but yeah. like, i mean i don't know if
0: there are people in your life now who if you say you were in a band that played with these bands they say oh my fucking god that's amazing yeah I'm but at, i mean I, I know plenty of people who you know just the bands you named it's you only know, in recent mind.
1: years because yeah. i mean i, I, I teach photography the um, university of the arts and and tyler school of art and and um you know you mentioned that like that and they're like wow and it made me think wow you know, oh, we opened for the cro you know. Oh, really? Yeah, that is a big uh, yeah, deal, mentor. too. Yeah, yeah and it's people are like, a, oh, my God. And I had just a student this past semester. Her favorite band is the cro And mm-hmm. she's like, I can't believe you opened for the cro like, yeah, I mean, like, I wouldn't even remember if you didn't say it, you right. know. Uh-huh. It's like the, I thought I remembered more the Mentors, because they were, they were <laughs> even weirder guys. Yeah, I would imagine they would yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was Mentors, cro us, the City Gardens. Yeah, what were your impressions of the City Gardens? Well, that place uh yeah, that place was um <laughs> the worst. <laughs> I you know, it it was what it was good about it was it was big. Mm-hmm. You know, it was a big hall. And I remember um god, I remember was like the guys from Cramax let us use uh I could pl- plug my my 50 watt combo into one of their Marshall stacks. I'm like, "Wow, I'm going to need this for this hall." Yeah, yeah, it was massive. You bad. know, um and um, the stage was really high up. That was probably a safety issue. For, mm-hmm. Not for the, you know, to keep the band safe. <laughs> right. Um, and I don't know how many people they could get in there. But, yeah, it wasn't, I don't know, like, Trenton didn't have, like, I don't know if there was a scene there. I can't imagine that there was. Because, you know, you remember yeah, just it driving was, into Trenton. It was, Trenton. Just a, it was, was, a, it was a roadhouse. A, yeah, yeah. And, and people came from Bucks County and, I don't know, Gloucester County, wherever they're coming from, in Camden, all over, so there was a pretty fragmented thing there. And I remember because the Cro were playing, and you know, there was skinheads at that show, and um, there were some fights out in the parking lot. Yeah, uh, yeah. and I, I you probably have to talk to Dan Dillon or John Finn because they would be like totally like attack dogs, of you know, like, oh, you're starting, those guys are stealing that guy's docks, you know. Uh-huh gotta stop them yeah yeah, yeah. city Gardens seemed to be a home of
0: violence maybe because there wasn't a cohesive scene centered around it that yeah was, it was nobody's policing. home plate yeah. yeah exactly so nobody just all yeah. yeah different groups of people coming in many of whom didn't like each other and many of whom wanted to beat the fuck out of each other at these shows they were uh, often a big mess yeah
1: i don't know how that place came up i guess i should read that book that just came out but um uh, you know it was just an oddity it was just like off of, what, Route 130 or something. I don't know what, you know, it was just a roadhouse. Yeah. It wasn't, there wasn't even any real uh, place around. There was no, no environment it was kind around. of like a ghetto yeah. neighborhood. It was just
0: a big parking lot. I remember passing Cluck You Chicken. Yeah. And everybody in the car was shouting, Cluck yeah. Chicken, and <laughs> yeah. we went by. Uh, yeah, and I then just wonder, that? is the car going to be there when we leave City Gardens? Right. Is it, or is this <laughs> going to be car? Are there going to be wheels in the car or not? And yeah. And dodgy but... guys in the parking lot, you
1: know, trying to hit you up for money. Because they see white faces coming into the neighborhood. Yeah, it was that was a bizarre scene there. Yeah, um, you know, I I went to a few shows there, but it did not like make a habit of it. Although every everybody seemed to play there.
0: Yeah, that was a thing.
1: Great right? bands yeah. played. I don't know who booked that place, but right you know, now. The, yeah. Okay. Yeah. He booked, book book. you could book anybody there, and and maybe it was because it was easy to get to. It's off the road and was like in between Philly and New York. Yeah, if you had a car, you could get there. Yeah. Uh, um. But it didn't at all seem like the scene in, in Philadelphia. Yeah. Uh,
0: you mentioned the move, uh, or maybe I mentioned the move incident. Yeah.
1: Um, so this is kind of a little side thing. But you said that you, you were around there. I was a senior that in high school. And that morning, I got up at like 4 or 5 in the morning to go down into the city. to. I was working on a senior project. Like, and So I was just doing photography for my senior project of Philadelphia architecture, of all things. And I went down to the city um, early in the morning to kind of shoot. I could be in the street and there wouldn't be traffic and there wouldn't be people around. And for some reason, I took like a half roll of pictures and I got back in the car. Like the light wasn't right. I didn't feel like taking pictures. And I turned on um, KYW News and they were saying, ah, the police are surrounding the neighborhood of the move house and there's, there's gunfire and blah, blah. I'm like, holy shit. Did you, you know, know that this was something that was building Yeah, a... I think I heard something about that and, and I and I knew about the Mantua. I remember one one summer uh, I came back from vacation and my, my my best friend's like, God, did you hear about the Move House? They had a big shootout in Mantua. This was the seventies, Yeah, that the, the was like the 70s, 78 seventy eight or something so, yeah, like mm-hmm. that. Um so you know, I you know, everybody knew what move was. Um so I knew they'd move there, and I didn't know they were that big a problem for the neighborhood. Maybe not. You know, I didn't know exactly what that story was. Have you seen the documentary, by the way? It's, it's no, recently... I, I, I need to see that, too. documentary is fantastic. Okay, yeah. I, want to, I want to see that. It yeah, just fire came fire. out like, yeah, this yeah. year. Yeah, if you have Netflix Instant, it's on there, okay. and you can watch it. I watched I, it a few weeks okay, ago. Okay, so, great. I impressed. need to see that. Um, but anyway, I got up there, like, I don't know, maybe 6.30 in the morning or something, and the police hadn't really taped off the area. I don't think they really knew what the hell they were doing. It doesn't seem so from watching uh, the documentary. I mean, I, I mean, I knew that they they definitely they definitely knew they were making a big attack on the building. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was all set up to take pictures of buildings. So I had like slow film and small wide angle lenses. So it wasn't really easy to. And I wasn't going to photograph it like a photojournalist. But I, I mean, I I sort of photographed people running around. The Miss James who was like. You know who owned the house. She was freaking out and running past the police lines and being you know grabbed by police and. Was reporters. she a member of of? No, I think or, or... some of her family members were. She okay. yeah. owned the house. Um, then there was I was photographed the police and the horseback. I'm sorry I didn't get a picture of this, but a car, police car pulled up right in front of me. I saw it was loaded down like the like the trunk was practically dragging on the ground, and immediately cop jumps out pops the trunk. The whole trunk was filled with boxes of ammo. Ah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it was uh-huh. like, you know, about 500 pounds. Yeah, of I think ammunition. they talk about
0: in the documentary that there's a point where they ran out of ammo and they had to call in for oh, more, which yeah, is probably what was you so just It was so fucking witnessed.
1: hairy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I I wasn't there that long. I was under a car with, like, someone from WIP. Uh-huh. You know, to, like, recording. I really, it was hard to take pictures because there was ricochets going everywhere. One cameraman, you know, from, I don't know, like, from... Action news or something caught one. He caught caught a slug in oh, his really? camera. Uh-huh. So it wasn't like for. So when I first got there, it was quiet. Must have been a lull, and then it's just. That fifty caliber, I mean, this was a war scene. Yeah, yeah. So, do you, yeah, you feel like you're a combat photographer. Yeah, and at that time, you know, there was, like, the El Salvadorian conflict, mm-hmm. and there was, you know, a lot of movies, like, romanticizing war photography. Yeah. You know, like, Battle, blah, blah, blah. Algeria, just, yeah. yeah, and so I wanted to do that, and I, this was a good experience. I'm kind of glad I I had this experience. The sound of that fifty caliber, you know, tripod-mounted, you know, chain-fed machine gun. Yeah, yeah, huh. That hits you in the gut, like you're, it, it reverberates your entire being. Mm-hmm. Um, and it woke my parents up in overbrook. They woke up at like 6 away. in the morning yeah. thinking, what the hell is that? You know, it's like probably two or three miles away. So that, they, they were just opening up on them. You know, I think they're just trying to demolish the building with the fifty calipers. Mm-hmm. And I saw the the firemen with the hoses on, like, I have photographs of them, of uh, the firemen on ladders on, like, every other house, and then heavy-duty fire so hoses. And they were trying to knock the fire enclosure thing built on the I don't the, think on they the top. were, I, maybe, or they just trying to flood them out of there. I mean, they were hitting them with, they were hitting them with, you know, hundreds of thousands of pounds of water. Mm-hmm. I mean, they had every hydrant going on there which is ironic because then they say well i couldn't put the they could have put the fire out in a second i mean they had the capacity to drench that place Mm -hmm. uh so they didn't you know and that was clearly arson yeah um so you know that whole scene and the fact that nobody was punished you know that that just disturbed me um, nobody deserves that, especially the children and the women in that house. Mm-hmm. And it was really sickening. And, and so, the, you know, I was always sort of had a an anti-authoritarian aspect. I think that might come from immigrant parents who are, you know, brought up in South Philly and I always suspect the overarching authorities. Yeah. Um, Did it change the way that you viewed Philadelphia at the time? Um... I think it affected me later when I came back, when I moved back to Philadelphia in 1990. Um, but that was because of the experience I had of half a year in Europe. And I kind of put two and two together because I think that, that marked the time where things were starting to get a little more uh, difficult, um, perhaps, to, to do things autonomously. Mm-hmm. You know, because here's a group who's acting autonomously, and they got to shit, knocked out of them. I mean, they killed like 10 of them and they yeah. destroyed But they, they were big homes. adjutants, though. I they mean, were, they, they yeah.
0: They certainly were not uh, fine members of the community in their behavior. Yeah, no, they, they
1: definitely... Uh, they, they didn't play their cards well. You know, right. they, wanted, they wanted to get... They wanted the attention... Uh, the police should realize, have like some psychiatrists working with them to kind of tell them how to deal with people like this. Yeah, because if they're walking about
0: with guns in, yeah. in the streets, right? Mm-hmm. And the children clearly malnourished. Um,
1: yeah, no, they, they, they should have been much more just going up without police, going up and speaking with them. You know, the, I don't think there was ever a, a, a big effort to make a dialogue with them. Yeah, yeah. Um, Rare is the city that can manage to burn down like sixty-one yeah, of its own homes. Yeah, but, but the disaster that ensued is, you know, far more criminal than anything Move ever accomplished. You know, <laughs> yeah. Right, yeah. Um, uh, you know, later when I, I was I did some squatting in Europe and sort of uh, uh, felt the tolerance of those those governments and towards the youth and towards taking over buildings and things like that. That when I moved in the, back to Philadelphia in the early '90s and saw. You know, literally thousands of abandoned places, mm-hmm. and no one really. You know, if anyone's going to go and occupy that building, it's going to be very stealthfully, and you know. And not, it's probably going to be and, drug people. Right, it's probably going to be a drug scene. It's a bad than people scene. Living. It's a bad scene. And I yeah. saw that whole uh, occupying buildings and and squatting in Europe. It was such a positive scene. It was just a, It was a. It was a bigger manifestation of what I witnessed, like with Better Youth Organization Hall, mm-hmm. BYO Hall. Um, and and things going on here you know I'm wondering what what it's like today you know can you have like a love club like today like there's like broadened South Street right facing Broad Street and you know they have like uh, you know millions of dead cops play there you know and have, yeah. and have hundreds of people out on the street that was tolerated there wasn't you know a crack I don't remember being a crack down there you know even when the place was catching on fire. I remember, you know, remember seeing. I wonder who who set the PA on fire. Someone was playing too loud, and the the main the main woofer just started smoking <laughs> and catching on fire. I was like, out of here, you know. Yeah, <laughs> I imagine a place like that is a tinderbox, and if it yeah, really yeah, oh, it's on all fire, fire, it was it's all over. plywood. It was just okay, plywood. Goodbye. Yeah. You know, and nowadays, I mean, even though you know, yeah, there could have been a crisis, but everyone's so alert. You know i think whenever there was anything like that people acted very responsibly and and took care of the situation and everyone just evacuated there out of it smoke you know smoke that was the end of the show Mm -hmm. um yeah and it's like oh okay um yeah but just hearing about the the force field thing getting closed down i mean you know they're planning this thing for like months and uh i was reading about it i'm just reading about it somewhere um not they're supposed to do it today, and it's like, no, oh, we can't L&I's, you know, preventing it from happening. And I'm, I'm like, well, my experience in Europe is that wouldn't happen, you know, because the authorities wouldn't, especially if it was a group that had a hundred members. Mm-hmm. You can't tell a group that has a hundred members that you can't do this event tonight. Right. Because have oh, been planning this for months. Yeah, those this people is will our be place. throwing but, bottles at you. Yeah. Yeah. They, yeah, they, tell them they can't do would, this. You have to keep the, uh, the authorities have to keep a, a a block or two distance from the from the site unless they wanted a war. Yeah. And, and unfortunately. In our culture, war is about the only answer the authorities have when they're threatened.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. They don't have any other negotiation tactics. Yeah. And that's my experience in Europe was, um, yeah, sometimes you do go to, go to war with the authorities, but uh, and most of the time, you know, you just numbers is enough and the threat of that mm-hmm. um, works out or the authorities don't want to go there. You know, they don't want to, you know, the, the war's not good for the community. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah.
0: And again, if you're not an agitating presence, if it's not mm-hmm. a den of, you know, drug-filled yeah, iniquity or no, something. Yeah, no, you're not trying, you know, you're not
1: like, you know, uh, selling stolen cars or something there. Yeah, know. I
0: mean, from what I know of those European squats, especially at that time, they were rather well organized and, yeah. uh, you know, kind of a positive, mostly positive mm-hmm. force.
1: Yeah, well, that one, I moved to D.C., Speaking of organized, that scene was much more organized than I the I mean, that was literally scene. Positive Force was happening yeah. in, in, in D.C. Yeah. Um,
0: were you drawn straight away to, to Positive Force and what they were doing down there?
1: Um, yeah, just the whole milieu of it, you mm-hmm. know. Uh, I mean, I actually wanted to go to George Washington University, and I, I, I they had a good photography program. I wasn't sure what I wanted to do, but I was really, their catalog is what attracted me. And then... Yeah, the DC thing was a clincher, uh, and also not being too far from the band. Right. So those three things perfectly coalesced to, to make my move there uh, a no-brainer mm-hmm. for me. Um, but yeah, I think it was because the drinking age was 18 that it, it was a, had a more professional uh, organization because the clubs could be you know act like normal commercial clubs but they embraced like DC space and mm-hmm. uh, 930 club you know you weren't um, you know if you were on uh, 18 it wasn't a you know big problem plus the whole crackdown on underage drinking really didn't really kick in until the 90s yeah. Yeah. and so you worked with uh, Shutter the Think. you were mm-hmm. roadie
0: for Shutter the Think?
1: yeah um, when um, I first went down there I met my uh, my best friend in DC, Chris Matthews, on like the first day I think I was down there. It was um, freshman orientation for George Washington University, and the freshman orientation was a pub crawl in Georgetown. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so uh, I met Chris Matthews, and he was from that sort of MacArthur Park area, like Georgetown, the whole area where you know uh, <clears throat> Henry Rollins and the, the Mackays came from. Yeah. Uh, so he knew those people you know, from the neighborhood, and he had just started getting into punk, and we met at the first bar on this pub pub crawl, and we just spent the whole day in there chatting, and it turned out he was living on the same floor in my dorm building, so, um, he was just starting to play with, uh, Stuart Hill in a band called Stooge, um, which was playing out a little bit at that time, but I don't think he was that committed to Stooge, um, and uh, you know we him, we shared rap records he was really into the who so he was still just making his transition into punk <clears throat> um and i think the bad brains and and um uh oh my god you know the, the meat men's album was really the or the superbikes was really it was almost uh. a dc album right there too And, he, uh you know was a major influence on on us it was, such, okay. that was such an awesome album <laughs> um uh, so, uh, But yeah, Craig Wedron, the singer for that band, he was still in high school. So actually, actually knowing someone who uh, was from D.C. and had friends still in high school and sort of connected to that scene was really a great introduction to D.C. for me that I wouldn't have had if I hadn't met Chris. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember <clears throat> the first time I met Craig, I may have maybe met Craig before that, but he was in the high school that Chris graduated from. I believe, and one, one uh, this is a story I remember, he said, my girlfriend's in this play, you know, uh, do you want to go, it was like a Friday night, do you want to go see this play at my old high school? I said, yeah, sure, let's go, and I was like Gilbert and Sullivan, I don't know exactly what it was, it was a musical,
0: yeah.
1: and that's when I saw, I saw Craig Redrin sing for the first time, it was Gilbert and Sullivan, wow. and I'm like, Chris, man, this guy can really sing, mm-hmm. This yeah. guy can sing. You need to talk to him. You know? yeah, you know, He's playing in a cover band. He's not interested in, you know, doing doing what we're doing. I was like, don't matter. You gotta get him in your band, you know. You gotta- so you're responsible then. I'm for taking sure. responsibility. <laughs> I don't know what happened on the other side, but I that's how I remember going to see a uh, uh, a play at this school. I forget the name where it was, like Calorama area in my school. But anyway, it was... Um, that that was I remember seeing him play, Craig Redrin singing this play, and then saying I knew he was not, and he was in a cover band of some sort. And I said, you know, Chris, you got to do that. So well,
0: congratulations, cause yeah. The thing was really for great. Take credit for that. that uh, so then you were there from the very beginning, from the curses spell. Oh the yeah. Mooses mm-hmm. thing and the tenth spot. Yeah, all, that,
1: yeah. all yeah, uh, that, yeah. Those first two albums, that's when I was, uh, you know, heavily involved with them. And then when they got the band started, I was, I, let's see, so. Uh, When we put out our EP, um, I think that was almost near the end of the band. I imagine if I just was, I was really involved in school. Um, Trying to think what else was going on. Uh, I was I was starting to get involved more in my photography, Um, and I was getting more like at home in D.C. Um, So by the time by my time my sophomore year, um, I just. You know, my father died that year, too, right before the record came out. Um, And so I just was in a transitional period, and I was just getting tired of, you know, doing that same thing. Imagine, it was probably just two years we were together. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, But I imagine if we stuck together, we probably, with the EP, we really could have done a lot more. Um, We sort of... You know, but at, at the time, you're just like who, you know, who care. You know, it just didn't seem. I'm thinking with with Shudder to think too. Why don't they stick around with them longer? You know, they open for Pearl Jam and uh, yeah. Smashing Pumpkins and you know toured Europe with Fugazi. Oh yeah. Could have done that too if I hung around, but <laughs> yeah. I didn't want to. You know, I didn't. I was just tired of, sort of wanted to do my own thing and getting more into developing what I wanted to do. In, as far as you know, in art and photography. So at that point, it was clear then that art and photography is, is what you wanted to do. Yeah, and I, I'm also Shutter to Think is. Um, I'm going to thank them for making that clear to me. They asked me to play guitar, with them. They were looking for a second guitarist, and I think they already like tried out nathan larson you know from Swiz, and i think they like said nah, that's all right Neat. and then so they asked me to play and i practiced with them for a few months um that's when i learned that i wasn't a musician because with with legitimate reason it was important that i wrote all the music uh-huh. and i started to realize i wrote all the music because i could play it <laughs> right, right. it's based on your skill yeah, level. yeah right so my timing my chord progressions it was all you know all geared to how i wanted I wanted to play, and then so here I am with a band that's already got starting to put together a serious repertoire. I think when I started playing with them, they had maybe, maybe I had already like 12 maybe at least fifteen songs or something like that, like a decent repertoire. Mm -hmm. And so I'm I'm having to learn all these songs, um, and I'm practicing with them, and I'm 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 you know there I'm just being a band. I want to be you know I'm a band. I was like do that. And then I was living with Chris at the time, and then one night he just came over and, uh, you know, I was in bed. He got out of his bed and said, "Um, you know what, we don't want to have a second guitarist. Is that okay? I'm like, you know what, Chris, that's fine. You know, no problem. Mm -hmm. And I was probably like a little initially shocked and upset, but I was like, you know what, yeah, he's right. You know, and made me think about it. I could not, I'm not a musician. You know, I couldn't... um, I couldn't uh, do it intuitively. Right. Yeah. You know, if I wrote the music myself, I could I could do it intuitively. Mm-hmm. But I knew that I, I um, you know, when I was playing, trying to learn someone else's music, and Chris Matthews, he can play guitar really nice. And then I remember from living with him, you know, he just put on a record, and he could pick out the licks mm-hmm. in in less than minutes. You mm-hmm. know, in a few seconds, he'd be like, "Have it down." My ear couldn't do that. It'd take me. I don't know, it took me days to figure out a song on a, you know, a record because yeah. my ear was just too tinny. Mm-hmm. You know, I, couldn't, I couldn't get it. But clearly you couldn't had the eye eyes. then for visual image. Yeah, my eyes were much better. And, and so I'm glad that put it into focus at the right time. You know, it was like my sophomore year in college, I think. And I, I totally was like, oh, you know what? Um, I'm not going to play anymore. And also, Chris also helped me out got by getting my guitar stolen, so, <laughs> <That happened. laughs> I, well, I think that summer then, after that, I lent him my guitar over the summer because I was really, you know, not, I didn't need it that, I think it was, a, uh, I'm trying to remember, yeah, I was going away or something, I lent it to him and he had an old, beat up Honda Civic and, yeah. and DC in that early 90s was like Philly in the early 90s, it was awful, rough. Yeah, you know, yeah. downtown was a shit, mm-hmm. uh, it was a real shithole uh, and there's nobody there at night and he had a, door on his car they had roped closed i mean it wouldn't lock <laughs> yeah. you know and he he's oh i left your i left your guitar in my car overnight on the street in dc with a rope do- door but it's a goddamn rope too <laughs> once they broke it so i was all pissed off he you know he he paid me for it and stuff but i took that money and i put it towards a lens or something yeah. you know so and that was it never again the guitar yeah came back into your life i never yeah. had it yeah I, has, I i've not had a guitar since that except maybe acoustic mm-hmm um, so that was really, that was a real division for me. I was involved with Shutter, you know, helped doing sound at shows, Roadie them, all, you know, all the shows in D.C. Um. And you went to Europe with them? And then when, when, um, when their first album came out on Sandwich Records, we, they asked me, I remember I just graduated from college, you know, Chris graduated that year too, and he said, do you want to, and I was thinking, you know, every, I would like to, travel around the country. That's like, you know, what you do after you graduate oh, yeah. from college. Yeah, we'll go see the world. Graduate. I didn't even I said I wanted to do that but I wasn't thinking how I'd do it. I didn't have any money. I wasn't gonna do it. And then and then Chris was like, Do you want a tour with us? We we just set up a tour, like a US tour.
0: Yeah. And
1: I'm like, Yeah. Yeah oh yeah, that's it. I wanna do that. And that was uh it was a rough tour. You know, anyone's first tour. And uh touring the States is not it's got to be hard for almost anybody who doesn't have a big budget behind them, because the the shows are so far in between. Yeah, communication at the time yeah. terrible. Uh, oh the, yeah, the promoters, the promoters. Who the hell on, knows
0: who they are? Yeah, you
1: don't know. I remember, <coughs> I remember once we like played a show in Houston, Texas, and there was no promotion, absolutely uh-huh. no promotion. I don't even know why. They, like a few girls showed up. The band was so pissed off they just played naked, <laughs> you know. And there's just like two girls sitting in chairs up in the front. <laughs> And we left that club after the show, and I remember we're like, Stuart was like the manager. He was like the bag man for the, you know, get the money. And we're like, Stuart, did you get the money? And he's like, no, I didn't even ask. It's like, well, you know, we have a guarantee, you know. We need gas money to get to Austin. Yeah. And um, so we're like, we're like 10 miles away. We turn around, go back, Stuart, go in there and get that money. Get something, Mm -hmm. you know. And I think he came out with fifty bucks, which was like you know that make you happy. You could fill the van up, you know. Yeah, maybe eat a burrito. Yeah, maybe get you know and get lunch the next day. Um, Did you play uh, Philly with Shutter? I think. I don't think we played Philly. They played later. I think they played Dobbs Kingdown. I I know. I know. I saw them. Oh, they played, and they used to play at um, uh, Trocadero pretty uh, pretty often later on. Um, yeah, but that I think we went as far as L.A. Played Long Beach. Uh, we Swizz opened up for us, um, and uh, so Amanda Mackay was on that tour with us because that was her record label, like Sandwich Records, and she just I was doing a Swiss record, and, and did, she did the uh, first Shutter album. Yeah, and uh, so she she was great. Um, did you like Swizz? Yeah, I liked Swiss yeah, too. They were pretty good. Fantastic band. Yeah. Um. You know they 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 couldn't hack it after a while. I forget why. You know they had to like I think we were in um, in color in Denver or something, and they're like you know I think we just have enough money. I don't know if we can take another uh, um, cancellation. You know I think so. We'll meet up with you in Buffalo. We've got to just go straight back to D.C. and then maybe catch the show when you start coming back the other side. I don't know how many shows you did. It was so hard to do shows. You got hardly get paid. Um, you wouldn't get fed. Yeah. Um, Great dollar like Yeah, between. five dollar a day per diem. Um, yeah. <clears throat> you know, I don't know. You know, luckily, like it would be connections that people had. Oh, you know, somebody who could stay at your place in St. Louis. Or Craig's father knew this Hollywood uh, nutritionist drug dealer, right? Oh, is that what it was? Well, okay. he's a doctor, but yeah. Hollywood nutritionist. Got some pep pills. Yeah. Some, some vitamin and B shots. And he said, yo, oh, we something. can stay at his place in L.A. And it was like in the Hollywood Hills up in, you know, one of those mansions up there. And I remember we we're walking up the road to, I don't know, even bring her van up there because this guy was like, you know, he parked his Mercedes in the driveway because he had some vintage car in the, you know, in the garage. And I remember we were walking up there and we hear this woman screaming. And we're like, Oh. It's L.A. It's Screams of Passion in the uh, Hollywood Hills. It was uh-huh. just weird. Uh, but we stayed there for a couple of nights, and like, we played a place in Long Beach. Um, I can't remember where we went from there. San Francisco, I think, but um, I don't know if we played there. Um, but yeah, it was a Raggle Taggle tour. The next year, they booked a European tour, cause they, uh, and they had Ten Spot coming out, mm-hmm. and that was their first Discord album. That certainly gave them a lot of clout. It was easy to book a tour. In Europe, yeah, Yeah. and um, and then the Europe was a totally different situation. We flew into Amsterdam, DC to Amsterdam, (coughs) toured and start for about three or four days. So we we had a you know we're going to do a live thing on Radio Netherlands. So it's like out in the suburbs of Amsterdam, and this was like our our first day or maybe second day. It was the second day there. We're out there in the morning. And it's this beautiful little studio in a suburban setting, lovely, everything, grass is cut nice, there's flowers, it's May, Uh you know, we we get out there, and as we're walking in, these guys are coming out, it's the beet farmers, and they're like, oh, you guys are, did you guys just get here? We're finishing up our tour. And he said, yeah, we just got here, like, what's going on? Like, it's like paradise. Yeah. And he's like, you guys are going to love it. This is our first tour, this is awesome, you know, Europe." You guys are going to love it. Have a good time. Uh-huh. And we go in there and we're like, you know, we're getting little plates of chocolates and, <laughs> and sandwiches. and uh-huh. <clears> They <throat> have a little cafeteria. Yeah, get whatever you want. Not yeah, like America. Yeah, and that's a beautiful radio studio and they did a, you know, a set for that. And I'm like, that was the introduction to Europe. <clears throat> and, and Europe was a whole, you know, uh, mind-opening thing. That, then I realized that's where Scream disappeared too. Mm-hmm. And I was like, in, you know, saw, when I first moved to D.C., I saw Scream a few times they disappeared. And I thought, oh, they, want, they never really wanted to come back from Europe. They were like, this is, this is a livelihood you can have, mm-hmm. a standard of uh, quality of life, I should say, Yeah. that um, you cannot, ha- I don't know where you could experience anywhere else. <clears throat> so we had a nine-week tour in Europe. Most of the shows were held. Um, some we had some cancellations in France and Spain, but then we we, we stayed in Paris for a week because of that. Yeah, you know, bummer. I was, like, I was not bummed out about. It. <laughs> right. Uh, promoter and some of the guys in the band were bummed out. I'm like, so what? Let's we gotta hang out with these guys, and friends that we made in Paris, and go to parties and stuff. And yeah, it was yeah. Awesome. You only had your father's uh, language skills. Yeah, you spoken in every. Yeah, like, like these guys country. mostly spoke pretty well English. Pretty. Pretty decent English, Um, but yeah. Then we we played a lot of squats in Europe, and at first I was like, "Oh shit," you know, because I knew some squats like up in West Philly, and I'm like, "Man, you know, people shit in the bathtub in those places," (laughs) you know. And I'm like, "And then we're gonna stay in them too," but they just totally blew my mind. They were the complete opposite of what I imagined, Um, and that really reinforced my 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 faith in the whole DIY. Punk thing, and I'm like, this was a manifestation on a different level. It was real culture, culture building and, and infrastructure building. Um, I'm trying to think of the first one we went to. It might have been the one in Bern, Switzerland, which is a huge. Uh, it's called the Reitschuler squat. It's an old cavalry barracks or riding school, like 19th century. It looks like the same architecture of the Philadelphia Zoo gates. Mm-hmm. You know, so yeah. that's what it reminded me. And they had these huge wooden marionette puppets. Mounted to the walls of the place are so like 30 feet high wow. and, um, and we pull in in the middle of the night like midnight and it's dark we go through these like medieval gates and we're in this compound they close it off behind and there's a bonfire in the courtyard. And it's like ACDC, like back and black, like blast. And there was like... The it remnants. sounds like a film. I mean, yeah. it must be so uh, It was, it was like, massive. Like, where, where the, I'm like, where the fuck are we? <laughs> yeah. You know, what the hell is... We didn't even know what the nature of this place was. Because we had a German manager, and, you know, he spoke decent English, but yeah. he didn't tell us much. Yeah. He's like, oh, you're going to play this place, it's real good. You know, okay. We And we drive the whole van in, they close it up, and we're like, in this compound, there's a few stragglers from this party... <clears throat> and then they show us to this huge group crash room where, you know, like 50, 60 people could crash in there. They're like, mattresses all over the floors and uh-huh. <clears throat> little uh, wood stove in the middle. Um, and then the dorm and the kitchen, it was like a, they were, they were just, they had just really um, had won some peace with the authorities on that. They had been thrown out a couple times over the three years previous where they originally uh, occupied the place. Uh, but at this time, it seemed settled with the authorities. And they I think they had worked something out for their utilities. And there were a lot of donations from the community. They were renovating the interior at, at the dormitory side. And it was like sculpture studios in there, huge sculpture studios, theater. Um, they had two clubs. Um, they had like a pub... Like a like a pub club type thing where it was a bar and probably could have like three hundred people and that's where we played and they didn't even charge admission. I was like impressed that they just passed a hat. They sell they sell beer illegally mm-hmm. uh, and then they paid us a thousand francs. You know, mm-hmm. it was like almost a thousand dollars and we're like, oh my god, they didn't even charge admission. Yeah, yeah. You know, and there's like another two bands. Yeah, imagine you know. the U.S. people would put like a button
0: in the hat or something or yeah, no, just, it
1: worked. <laughs> And then not only that, I remember they ran out of beer downstairs. So I was like, <clears throat> I went up to get more beer, you know, for the band. And and I went up to the second floor, and there was a huge nightclub up there. I didn't realize, and they, they wouldn't let me in. They're like, oh no, all women disco. And I'm like, wow, oh, that's w- weird. That's cool. So I'm with the band. We just I just got to go to the bar. Oh, oh okay. And I just like <laughs> you know get like a bucket of beer and a case of beer to bring downstairs. Um, but that was like a club for like a thousand people. Above it, above it, and they had a huge communal kitchen. They had a, a restaurant in the place. You pay whatever money you had, you know, whatever denomination of money you had, wow, that the currency. Um, they had a photography lab, darkroom, printing press. Mm. Uh, so it was like a cultural. It was a real culture center, and it's still there.
0: Yeah, that that's very impressive. You know, so
1: yeah. we that was probably one of the biggest ones. But there were others like that. And then there were ones that were, like, co-opted by the government, which I remember one, like, in Nijmegen, Holland, that was an old school converted. Mm-hmm. And it was beautifully done. I mean, obviously I obviously had some more than donations at work there. But it was like a YMCA, except that they had a bar and a club. Mm-hmm. And there were all art studios and music practice studios upstairs. So, like, when we first got there to do the, you know, sound check, there were people bringing stuff in to do rehearsals upstairs. Mm-hmm. Um... There was a even a hash bar in the place, mm-hmm. you know. But they didn't open it until ten because you know it was all ages. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> good. But it was, and there was it was just an eclectic. I was amazed at the the group of people. It seemed like gay, straight, punk, hippie, young kids, you know, fourteen, fifteen, older people in their thirties. That's was was really what um, impressed me. Also, the Europe is uh, the um, heter- heterogeneous. Uh, makeup of mm-hmm. the shows yeah. right it, it gave and it, it was really good for bands to have that kind of feedback yeah, yeah. Um, so we played a lot of places like that from Oslo to Vienna um, Italy there were some rough ones we played the Leon Cavallo squat, and like a year earlier um, <clears throat> Metallica had played there <clears throat> because like Italy's a weird place it's like it's either Guido Disco and this time or it was like U2, you know, like stadium mm-hmm. thing. There was no in-between of a, like a, a you know, a, a trendy club. So Leon Cavallo was an old industrial site in Milan, and it was a huge site too, and it was half-wrecked because it just survived a police attack about, mm-hmm. <clears throat> you know, six months earlier where they, they said it took three days for the authorities to breach the compound, <clears throat> and then they, they, they arrested everybody and they started demolishing it, but I think they were able to get protests to shut down the demolition, and then they moved back in on it. Mm-hmm. And so there were like doorways on the second floor to nowhere, but um, that was a big hall. And they also just you know had a big, it was like a soup kitchen. You know, people, you know, you get a good meal there for like two or three dollars. Yeah, that's nice. Um, I remember later on going back there and bringing some guy I met, he probably saw my, my marginal man T-shirt or something. It was like, hey, He's like, I said, I'm going to take a train out of here too, but let's go get dinner at this place. Mm -hmm. And he's like, it's the best meal I ever had. And I was like, you know, pennies really. Yeah. That is amazing. Um, So, but you know, the fact that places like that could even pull off like a Metallica show where they got like, you know, maybe four or 5,000 people. Yeah. Yeah. You know, coming to a show (laughs) and it's totally underground. Yeah, that that is a <clears throat> organizational skills. Yeah, um, so and
0: ethics. That's yeah. ethics that the, mm-hmm. the you know the attendees are, mm-hmm. are not adjutants. That they're all kind of uh on board.
1: right. So I en- I enjoyed that 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 environment of freedom. You know, mm-hmm. that's freedom. You know when you know the authorities say, oh well you know, okay you've got your group of people and you're taking charge of this and you know it's, it's up to you. You have to be safe and. You know, if someone gets hurt. That's your problem. I I, I think when I was given the talk the other day at the uh, AIA, they, um, uh, I showed the a um, uh, uh, a railroad viaduct that we played in Hamburg, mm-hmm. and um, this was the Hoffenstrasse squat, a really big famous squat in Hamburg. It had like a whole city block of tenement buildings, like five-story apartment buildings. So it's kind of like Lower East Side. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and uh, I don't know by how many punks lived in there you know 500 or you know it was like dormitories for hundreds of punks and they had clubs and bars along the corner in the corners and um, and uh, but they they were doing a big show it was too big for that for their clubs on that block so they they took over this viaduct and they did shows under the arch. It would be like going down, like, uh, on Vine Street, you know, or, or like uh, Callahill where the uh, Reading Viaduct is. Mm-hmm. And just, like, taking one of those unused spaces and tapping yeah. some power off the railroad line and hooking up, you know, 50,000 watts of speakers and yeah, having fantastic. a show for yeah, 500, yeah. 700 people. Yeah. And they just do that, you know. And it was just... It was mind blowing, and somehow it, society doesn't fall apart as a result of that. It didn't. It was improved. No, yeah, yeah. You know, exactly, there was yeah. stuff for young people to do. It didn't cost a lot of money. In fact, who knows? it Probably almost cost nothing to do that. I mean, yeah, somebody's got to rent sound equipment.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, they probably charged a minimum. I probably charged something to get in there. Again, they had a you know just a table selling beer, cold beer on the side.
0: Yeah.
1: You know, and that. You know, that if you can sell alcohol, it's a good, very good uh, revenue generator. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, not only that, these places would actually pay bands, feed them, house them. Yeah,
0: it was an entirely workable system. <clears throat> yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, I guess we're going to start to wrap the thing up. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wanted to get to you. Philly, you've mo- you moved more into visual arts and sort of away from that scene, but it seems like it still influences you and informs your that, that, work. That-
1: that time with the squats when i i moved directly back from there back to philadelphia and like 15th and spruce street and um the city was just you know it was worse than i remember it and um i think i was still going to shows and stuff then but um i was much more getting into my photography and i i i think the fact that i saw these vacant buildings without any care um that had the and the it made me see the potential in the building, which I probably wouldn't have wouldn't have had if I hadn't had that experience in Europe. Because
0: right, you <laughs> saw analogous buildings in Europe that were yeah. vibrant with life, right. rather than falling into a state right. of Right, these would air. be you know
1: public buildings, old schools, and things that you know you would be empty for the, the the it would be empty for ten, fifteen years, and young people would say, well, let's take this over. You know, we we could live there, we could put on shows, or we could have art studios in there it's going to, uh, you know, it's going to be a, ben- let's turn it into a benefit and it's cheap. It's free real estate. Mm-hmm. So um, that coming back just t- that totally opened up my eyes to seeing that, um, that, that potential, that lost potential. So the lost potential of the uh, infrastructure of the city and the lost potential of all the um, people who were uh, unemployed, I mean, the, the unemployed people in the city is huge. Mm-hmm. You know, so that, that was a major thing. So you had vast human capital and vast, you know, uh, infrastructure. It just was empty. And it made me think, you know what, if you did that here, you probably are going to, you know, you're going to get your head busted in by the authorities. Yeah. You know, they're not going to even, they're not even going to negotiate with you. Mm-hmm. Um, and that just, again, reminds me of, you know, also using L&I to, like, you know, when they have... Uh, you know, political groups. When we had the the um, Republican convention and stuff, you know, they would use the L and I and use the fire department to close mm-hmm. things down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's a, it's a shame that those that those those public institutions are used as tools to to destroy dissent mm-hmm. and to try and, and smother dissent.
0: I think it's interesting looking through your book at all of the these buildings that are just not there anymore. That you, it must be. Uh, it must be interesting for you to have documented them when they were, existent, and now, all gone. Yeah, or, or it was many, part of, many gone. part of
1: recording the history and that the, and the loss of that, that opportunity. All those opportunities that could have existed, and some of them, you know, in the book, you you know, there's places that were. I was surprised, like the Spring Garden, Elementary School in there. It's. Um, you can see there was a sign where a community organization was trying to have you know educational facility you know have classes and things like that and they just couldn't do it you know they did they can't afford to turn the electricity on and and um to maintain a building let alone uh, you know a non-profit organization that's going to help the community it's, mm-hmm. it's really impossible unless you know you cut corners oh, well, maybe we steal the electricity and you know just turn the water on at the street. Yeah. And but
0: surely that's a, f- a finite <clears throat> proposal. I mean, it's never going to yeah, be, no, be sustainable. It, it,
1: I mean, but in Europe they do that. Yeah. You know, and at least it gets things started. Uh, you know, here there should at least be some opportunities for the city to, you know, to do things where they they, uh, they help organizations. There's another one, a firehouse, that was a you know, strawberry mansion community group. They just, you know, there was some money to help fix it up or clean it out, but it didn't last and it became an eyesore. Then the neighbors are complaining about it. They're begging to have it torn down. You know, that's normally what you hear is like the, the community's like, tear it down, tear it down. And that's usually the, the, um, the answer mm-hmm. that the authorities have when something's not right with a building, you know. Well, just level it. Right.
0: So now having written a book like this, do, do you find that maybe people would pay attention to you and your voice in wanting to see some of these buildings sustained or resurrected?
1: Yeah, I think if people focus a little more on it and the potentials that the buildings have, mm-hmm. you know, the ability to uh, um, at least demonstrate or have people express that the building has value, not, you know, as a landmark, mm-hmm. you know, and we need the landmarks just to have our memories intact and our history you know, to be able to be told.
0: Do you think that there are uh, a chorus of voices active in this city trying to do just that?
1: Yeah, there are. There's, you know, there's the Preservation Alliance. is you know, a non group that does. AIA does somewhat, you know. The problem is that a lot of professionals who work in architecture, and generally they don't want to be too vocal and can't be, uh, can't express perhaps exactly how they feel because... You know, you don't know where their next uh, assignment and project might come from. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's, I think uh, people are a little bit scared to be more active and speak out. You yeah. know, and I think that's another sign of the times that I kind of charged that period. And like I said, like the late 70s or early 80s, where it was a real free spirit time, you know, where anything was possible. Um, and there weren't many barriers to entry, mm-hmm. you know, and that's what was special about that time you know you could do it if you wanted to yes
0: okay well super Vincent thank you very much for uh, doing the interview with me great it
1: was a pleasure